An anti-Semitic riot in Makhachkara, capital of Dagestan. It's horrific, but is it a big deal? And if so, how? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. There is a distinct irony to the fact that I'm recording this on the 4th of November, which is Russian National Unity Day a day in which all Russian citizens, no matter what their creed or colour, are meant to unite as part of one big happy family. But this family definitely is showing some certain signs of schism. But again, precisely how important, how significant, that's something I really want to discuss. For those of you who may not be up with the particular depressing events of Makachkala, what happened was this week a mob of hundreds of essentially young men, probably over a thousand in fact, chanting all sorts of anti-Semitic and Islamist slogans and waving Palestinian flags in some cases, stormed the airport at Makachkala, capital of the North Caucasus region of Dagestan, and began, well, first of all they blocked the runway and they tried to start checking passengers' passports to see if they were Israelis. Because after all, the rumour had spread that a flight from Israel was bringing in Israeli refugees that were going to be settled there in Dagestan. Now, at first, it had to be said that beyond the relative handful of security personnel at the airport, the rioters pretty much had free reign. But after a period of paralysis, I'm not quite sure if one could call it brief, but, but certainly not too long anyway, then the authorities responded with rather more vigour. The airport was closed, communications in the area were jammed, and the National Guard, riot police, the Amon, were deployed. What followed was, well, at, at times a distinctly, shall we say, bad-tempered bit of policing. More than 20 people were injured, including nine police officers, and 60 protesters were detained, and more arrests are expected, particularly as the police use their facial recognition software to scour CCTV footage from the airport. A very unpleasant incident. But we've got to put it in context, not because context makes it any better, but to fully understand it. It is part of, and the most extreme example of, a rising tide of anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli acts in specifically the North Caucasus. I think it's worth stressing that. I mean, as I'll come to later, this is very much a regionally focused issue. Tensions in this predominantly Muslim region have been rising in recent days, and really ever since the 7th of October um, terrorist attack on Israel by Hamas and the subsequent Israeli response. For example, week before, there'd been an arson attack on a Jewish centre that was under construction in Nalchik, the capital of kabardino balkaria Then after that, there had been a rally in Cherkesk, the capital of the region of Karacheva Cherkessia, which was demanding that residents of Israel be banned from entering to the region. There was a hotel that was stormed. 
people checking because of the again the rumor that refugees from Israel were being settled there all very bad-tempered, deeply unpleasant, and very much motivated by a sense of Muslim unity with the Palestinians. Now, all sorts of different explanations for what happened have been advanced. The first one is the, the classic knee-jerk one that, oh, well, it must have been orchestrated by the Kremlin. After all, you can't possibly mobilise protests without either central or at the very least local government support. This deeply misunderstands the level of and the scope of the power that actually the Kremlin can project, especially in the North Caucasus. I mean, in Dagestan, just alone, we've seen all kinds of protests, protests that often get, shall we say, pretty muscular. We've seen them against, for example, mobilisation. We've seen them in response to uh, persistent problems with, with public utilities. We've seen them for a whole variety of reasons. So, you know, it's not actually as if this is a, a normally stable and rigidly controlled region that suddenly mysteriously sort of bubbled up. And even, frankly, the pause between the National Guard forces actually arriving, which, again, some people have advanced as clear proof that there is some kind of official connection. Well, I, I think one has to recognise, first of all, that there was probably genuine surprise. And not everyone is necessarily following the sort of rather dodgy extremist social media channels that seem to very much have whipped this up. And again, more on them in a moment. And it's not as though a company of Amon riot police are kept on permanent standby. You do have to bring these people together. You have to work out what it is you're facing. It's worth noting, after all, that some of the protesters we saw did have guns, which again tends to mean that the security forces will pause for a moment. They're not necessarily going to roll straight in. They're going to assess the situation first. So there are just practical reasons why it doesn't all happen immediately. And let's be honest, we've seen in so many other circumstances that unless they're prepared or unless we're talking about an incredibly heavily policed area like the centre of Moscow, can often take quite some time for the security forces to respond. I think more broadly that kind of delay and indeed the relatively minor sentences that we've seen so far handed out to people involved reflects a very serious concern about getting involved. See so far after all the protests are not explicitly directed against the government. These are people on the whole who are not what we would think of as partisans of the government but at present the anger is against Israel, against the Jews, and if need be, against local authorities that they feel might be letting in all these nefarious Israeli refugees and the like. However, things could change really quickly. The more the authorities get involved, the more the authorities are in a way choosing to establish themselves as the enemies of the mob. And there's a very strong parallel, actually, if one looks at the late 19th century Russia. Well, there you actually had, because of a high-speed and, frankly, pretty brutal industrialization process. You had the industrial workers in these expanding new cities increasingly conscious of the absolutely appalling conditions in which they were operating. So what did they do? They did the standard things. They formed trade unions. They began to strike. They began to protest. And the authorities, in part because so much of this industrialization was actually being driven by the needs of the military, intervened, came in very heavy-handed, arrested, sent Cossacks against the strikers and so forth. And very quickly, what had essentially been economic protests 
whose hate figures were the industrialists and the factory managers and so forth, very quickly became political protests in which actually the target was the regime. And from this, particularly because it was in the cities, in some ways we see the start. This is acted as the, the, the recruiting sergeant for the Bolsheviks and the other essentially urban-based leftist, in some cases terrorists, but in other cases simply revolutionary movements. So, you know, in that context, there is a fear that if they involve themselves too heavily, there is a fear that actually what they do is they mobilise Islamism even further against the state. And very briefly on those lighter offences, look, it's the easier cases are the ones which you can actually get resolved more quickly. The ones where someone actually can be charged with something relatively minor, can be encouraged to plead guilty, place a brief, whether it's a brief prison sentence on them or whatever, and move on. Some of the other ones, particularly the more serious ones, if they want to go about against the instigators, well, that may well be harder and take longer. So in some ways, the fact that so far the sentences have been quite light does not in and of itself suggest that there's some kind of leniency. So, look, this idea that it's been orchestrated, this is actually a deeply uncomfortable, embarrassing and dangerous movement for the authorities. So I don't think we can assume that they were behind it themselves. Then at the other extreme, we have the Putin line, which is, of course, this is all down to foreign subversion. As he said, for this purpose, they, the West, obviously, especially the Brits, they use a variety of means, as we can see, lies, provocations and sophisticated technologies of psychological and information aggression. The events in Makhachkala last night were inspired also through social networks, not least from the territory of Ukraine, by the hands of agents of Western special services. Likewise, Sergei Melikov, who is head of the Dagestan Republic, and incidentally an ex-commander of the National Guard, you know, I would say it's fair to say an enforcer rather more than a bridge builder. Anyway, he blamed the Utro Dagestan telegram channel, of which much more are non and that he had said he had absolutely reliable, open information that the Utro Dagestan channel is run from the territory of Ukraine by traitors. Well, overall, this is absolute nonsense. This is not some kind of foreign operation, but actually something that comes from Dagestan and from the Dagestan is involved. That said, look, it really wasn't helpful that Volodymyr Zelensky quickly turned in into an anti-Moscow propaganda point in that he blamed the whole incident on what he called Russia's widespread culture of hatred towards other nations. So, you know, when, when you've got the, the Ukrainian president in effect trying to mobilise it, it, we shouldn't be surprised that the Russians regard this as part of some kind of campaign. Although, in the main, I think that they don't necessarily believe their propaganda. The thing is that Uttradagistan which, as I said, was, was, was very important in actually um, basically whipping up the crowd. It is a pretty, or was actually, because it's now been uh, scrubbed off Telegram, a, a pretty hateful outlet, and, and did indeed call for action against the quote-unquote unclean passengers on a plane coming in from Israel. And that, I mean, here's actually a quote. Peace be upon you. A flight from Israel arrives at Makachkala Airport tomorrow... 
We have to organise ourselves. Organise ourselves. Go to the airport, reach all of Dagestan, and wait for them on the runway and catch them before they disperse. And another post said, Allow them to exit one by one, curse the state of Israel, and then move on. If they refuse to curse Israel, we'll block the airport and won't let them leave. Now, the channel did indeed have a political and financial relationship with former Russia parliamentarian and now Kyiv-based strident anti-Putin campaigner Ilya Panamaryov. Panamaryov has acknowledged his connection both with the frankly rather grandiosely named Freedom of Russia Legion, which is one of the two units of Russians who are actually fighting on Kyiv's side, but also on individuals staging acts of terrorism inside Russia. So no wonder he very much features at the sort of top of Russia's hit parade of enemies. Traitors indeed. Panamaryov admits that he provided funding for and really set up Utro Dagestan. And he certainly used it in a campaign against mobilisation in Dagestan. But he claims to have had no relationship or connection with the channel since autumn of last year. Frankly, it seems to have been as part of a a real dispute with the person he had actually engaged to run it in that for some reason that guy seemed to think he should be being paid his his salary and Panamaryov seemed disinclined to do so so more or less he allowed this individual to take the channel in lieu of any kind of payment well i mean that's that's the the, the line we've been given and i have no reason to disbelieve it except that as the bbc has re- reported Panamaryov called Utro Dagestan our channel as recently as August of this year. And he also referred to the channel as part of his operations in September, a month before the riots. Now, as I said, I, I don't know how much one should read into it. I'm perfectly willing to believe that this was just, shall we say, a certain amount of spin and hyperbole. He was trying to big up the size of his operation. But it is rather unfortunate in that it makes it look as if a Kiev-based opponent of the Kremlin was funding a telegram channel that was calling for anti-Semitic pogroms in Dagestan. So, that's the, the situation. I have to confess that I do find myself wondering when we will ever learn that my enemy's enemy is not always my friend. And that encouraging bigots, extremists and wannabe genocidaire simply because in the first instance they're a problem for someone else is pretty stupid and counterproductive. I mean, after the way that US support for jihadists against the Soviets in Afghanistan helped facilitate the rise of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, and after the Russians in effect created Kadyrov's pretty much autonomous and deeply unpleasant snake pit of a regime in Chechnya, you'd think the lessons would have begun to sink in. Yeah, you'd think. But look, even without focusing on Utro Dagestan, North Caucasus social media is full of anti-Israeli and anti-Semitic messaging. I mean, the, the Salafi channel Al-Istikam, for example, also focused on alleged arrivals from Israel and wrote... We've already observed a similar situation. First, they will arrive as refugees. Then they will begin to draw their borders and then seize them. As if in any way it's plausible that Dagestan is about to be taken over by a wave of Israeli 
Jewish refugees. I mean, this is nonetheless the stuff of which xenophobia is made. The idea precisely that your insidious enemies, whether they are, shall we say, territorial or biological or whatever, are here to undermine the essential purity of your people and, and your homeland. So it's, it's, it's a depressingly familiar tale. So while Uttar Dagestan may or may not have been the key motivator behind this particular riot, it, it didn't generate it from nothing, and nor is it unique. Unless you really want to posit as a massive, multi-tentacular foreign plot to agitate Islamists in the region by focusing on Israel, then you can't ultimately pin the blame on outsiders. This is something that is actually much more intrinsic to the region. So this leads to a rather more subtle angle, is that, well, the Kremlin created fertile soil for this kind of unpleasantness through anti-Semitism and support for Hamas. Well, again, let's look at those Anti-Semitism. I'm going to talk about this more later in, in the podcast, but I really think we need to recognise that today's Russia, for all its many problems, is not the Russia of fiddler-on-the-roof pogroms, or even indeed of Stalin's doctor's plot, where after World War II, he claimed that a cabal of Jewish doctors had been out to, to poison and kill him and other Soviet leaders. Now, things have moved on. There is an anti-Semitism issue within Russia, as there is in so many other countries. But Russia is by no means the worst. And as regards the notion that somehow the Kremlin support for Hamas provided a, a signal which encouraged or enabled these kind of protests. Again, I don't really buy this. First of all, if we talk about this kind of quote-unquote support for Hamas, what this really means, if you look at Russian official statements and the Russian media, is yes, they, they have indeed highlighted particularly the plight of Palestinian civilians over Israeli civilians. And they have not really condemned Hamas's ghastly acts in the kind of full-throated terms that they absolutely deserve. So, yes, I mean, it is clear that the Russians, well, the Russian state, is definitely trying not to get involved in, in actively going after Hamas, because to do so clearly would put it in trouble with Iran. But that's a long way short of outright support, or even kind of dog whistle hinting. Besides, if you think that essentially anti-government Islamists, and again it's worth stressing the degree to which actually we're talking about regions in which there is a, a strong Islamist anti-Kremlin sentiment. Anyway, that anti-government Islamists are that sharply influenced and that quickly influenced by what the Kremlin says, then why isn't the North Caucasus a region of stability and content? So what is this? And more to the point, is this a terrible crisis in the, for the Kremlin? Now, the Moscow Times, in a piece, quoted a series of unnamed current and former Russian officials, all with rather, frankly, apocalyptic perspectives. Uh, one said, this is a national emergency. It's a failure of everyone. The domestic policy supervisors in the Kremlin, the special services and the local authorities. I mean, admittedly. They are all indeed having demonstrated themselves to be failures, but whether that makes a national emergency, it's another matter. 
In my inner circle, almost everyone is at a loss. This is a complete replay of the Prigozhin Rebellion. No, it's not. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nasty local pogrom, absolutely. And it's one that raises some rather serious issues about the management of the North Caucasus. But to compare that with a mutiny that led to several thousand mercenaries a couple of hundred kilometres away from Moscow, I find that rather questionable. And finally, the authorities' failure to prevent the riot, followed by the initial failure to intervene and restore order, raises questions about the extent to which the Russian security services keep Putin informed. As they knew in advance that the situation in the Caucasus was heating up due to the Israel-Hamas war. And that was from a Kremlin official, apparently, who previously worked in the security services. I'm really not getting the sense that this is anything like as serious in the perspective of the Kremlin as, as all of this presents. Of course, it is an issue to be addressed. But let's put it into proportion, especially given the fact that, you know, I dare say the war and indeed the imminent, I would imagine, announcement of Putin standing for the presidency are probably rather more significant. Putin does not need to be informed or involved for there to have been action. So we can't say that, oh, this proves that, that Putin wasn't being informed. But, you know, conversely, the lack of serious preparation and uh, to attempts to try and preempt this kind of protest doesn't in need to imply that Putin wasn't involved in some way. Look, this is embarrassing, absolutely. Not least as Dagestan was where Putin, or, or his double, went for his first PR trip after Prigozhin's mutiny. And we saw him out there glad-handing joyous masses in Derbent in Dagestan, posing for selfies while the crowds shouted his name. You know, all this footage which was broadcast wall-to-wall -wall on Russian state television. But the point is, first of all, this is not an explicitly anti-Kremlin act. But it is implicitly, in that I don't think anyone thought they were doing this with the approval or support of the authorities. And the people doing this are not loyalists. As I say, they're not necessarily kind of actively anti-Kremlin at this stage. And it's the fear of tipping them over that line, which is one of the reasons why I think the response was, was a rather limited and laggardly one. But the point is that, again, the, these are not the, the natural constituency of the authorities. And it's worth noting that for some people, this crisis is an opportunity more than an embarrassment. I mean, Melikov himself, big man in Dagestan, not very big in Moscow. This gives him a chance precisely to mobilise the crisis to get resources. This is actually how so much of Russian politics works. Never is there a bad crisis when it comes to resource management. Dagestan is an exceedingly poor region of the Russian Federation. 70 to 80 percent of its budget comes from federal subsidies. And nonetheless, it's got 16.3 percent unemployment, which is equal fourth in the country and one of the lowest average incomes. This is at a time when overall federal subsidies are being cut because of the huge amount of money that is having to go to the defense budget. Well, this gives Melikov a case for the very least keeping the old level of funding, if not more. 
Because when it comes down to it, the last thing the Kremlin wants to have to be coping with is a new crisis in the North Caucasus at a time when it's rather busy as is in, in Ukraine. So from Melikov's point of view, it actually gives him a reason why he's not a supplicant in Moscow. It's why he actually has a very solid reason, and that means a security reason, because it's security, frankly, which is what gets you resources in the current environment, to go to, to Moscow and say, this is why you need to get more money coming my way, because basically I have to buy off the protest potential here. So Melikov wins. Who else? Well, I was fascinated by the fact that Alexander Bastrykin, the head of the investigatory committee, very quickly came out to say not only that his, his guys in Dagestan would, would be on the case, but essentially taking over personal responsibility for the investigation of the riot. Now, Bastrykin is one of these figures I've talked about in them in the past, who is interesting because he is not someone with a strong personal relationship with Putin. He has to keep demonstrating his utility in order to maintain his position and that of the investigatory committee against his rivals and enemies, which include the FSB. But what's been really striking about the last 18 or so months is actually the degree to which he has been trying to manufacture the appearance of activity while not getting involved in what is, after all, the core topic at the moment, which is the Ukraine war and obviously going after anyone who is at all critical of the Ukraine war. This is a man who is still really, really carefully trying to tiptoe his way along the fence, which is interesting because this is a man who also has quite, I would suggest, lengthy and sensitive political antennae. And it's clear that he is imagining the possibility that everything goes bad in Ukraine and that there is either some kind of change in leadership or at the very least a dramatic change in policy. And he doesn't want to find himself stranded on the wrong side of that debate. So you know, in that context, this has suddenly given him a new reason to be active and visible and demonstrate that he can actually do things that are useful for the leadership without actually having to get involved with the Ukraine conflict. So, you know, again, we should recognise that for some people, bad news for the country is good news for them. But what do I actually think are the real lessons one can draw for what on the one hand is just an individual incident, but which on the other, I think, does indicate a whole variety of other processes currently under, at work under late Putinism? Well, for that, you're going to have to wait until after the break. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So, what do I think of the real lessons of Makachkala? Well, first of all, and perhaps a little obviously, Russia is much less controlled than some people think especially when we're talking about political activism and protests which are not explicitly and directly anti-Kremlin, and even more so when we're talking about the North Caucasus. As I say, there's the irony that today 
is, well, as I'm recording, today is the 4th of November, which is the regime's pretty artificial day of national unity. This was ostensibly established in 2005, to well, it was established in 2005, but ostensibly to celebrate the events of 1612, when a people's militia, under the leadership of a certain Kuzma Minin and Prince Dmitry Pozharsky, liberated Moscow from Polish invaders. In practice, it was really created to mask the attempt to erase from the calendar the commemoration of the Great October Revolution on the 7th of November. Now, they'd already named that day the Day of Accord and Reconciliation, but for some strange reason, that never really took off. I mean, what a what a banal and, frankly, hallmark-level um, day, that Day of Accord and Reconciliation. Anyway, what's interesting is that although there are massive disparities in wealth, life chances, and so forth across the country, Nonetheless, it is clear that there is a definite sense of a coherent national identity with some variation, but frankly, I would suggest somewhat less than, for example, the United States. A a poll by Vutsion, which again, caveat here, it's a polling organisation, it's a professional polling organisation, but nonetheless, this is also government controlled. And therefore, there's always some kind of suspicion about the degree to which there might be a finger on the scale sometimes. But anyway, uh, a survey showed 60% of Russians believing that there is unity in the country. 60%, I mean, look, compared with Putin's approval ratings, that's not very impressive. But in the real world uh, of trying to find sort of common views, that's actually not bad. And it's, it's, it's the highest level yet given that uh, Vatsyom sort of checked this, I think, I think on, a, on an annual basis. And you know, in that respect, although people may not really regard National Unity Day as a particular big deal, it's just a nice to have a holiday, nonetheless, it does say something about perceptions of the Russian Federation. But this is actually very different in the North Caucasus. First of all, in terms of actually polling, tends to find that the people of the North Caucasus um, she had rather more extreme views in that those people who are supportive of the Russian Federation tend actually to be really quite passionate about it. But on the other hand, there is also a, a larger sense that, in fact, the, the country isn't really very unified and that they feel separate. And so while I absolutely don't hold by the rather overexcited claims that the Russian Federation is going to break apart or is susceptible to being broken apart, I do really wonder how far the North Caucasus is really part of the Russian Federation and whether it will continue to be, and for that matter, whether most people in the Russian Federation would want the North Caucasus, but that's a whole other issue. But when we come to control over the country, in particular responses to troublesome situations, I think the the Makhachkana incident does highlight the degree to which manual control from the centre In other words, either needing to be pushed by Moscow or actually having to get the approval from Moscow still seems to be needed for tough decisions or actually something that local officials will require because basically they don't want to stick their necks out. And this particularly is evident in terms of the speed and effectiveness of the security forces which are already being, shall we say, distorted and redirected because of instructions from the centre. 
you know, there, there is a massive security structure in Russia, the police, the National Guard, the Federal Security Service, etc. But this is also a massive country and they face a massive challenge. We're already getting, for example, the police complaining that they're under such pressure to prosecute people who, I don't know, retweet some anti-war message or else who are failing to respond to mobilization orders that they are having tr real trouble addressing their proper role of policing, especially because although there have been promises to increase the overall size of the police, given that at present the kind of people who could join the police could easily also go and serve in the military for much, much more money, they're actually having trouble recruiting. The focus on a particular kind of dissent has also, I would suggest, rather blinded the FSB. Now, the FSB had built up a, a massive quite competent, if also ruthless, apparat in the North Caucasus, particularly in the 2000s, during the time of the Second Chechen War, and the 2010s, when there were still you know, quite a lot of uh, issues to do with uh, insurgencies, local jamaats, local fighting groups, as well as terrorism. But the irony is that as that became largely controlled, then people could move elsewhere. And in particular, to be blunt, there isn't good money in operating anti-terrorist operations and anti-Islamist operations in the North Caucasus. So if you're smart and you're ambitious, you want to move out. You want to essentially move into the anti-economic crime directorate if you want to make money or into the anti-dissent part of the FSB if you actually want to make a name of, for yourself. So you know, we, we have seen the FSB, frankly, lose capacity in the North Caucasus. And in particular, because it's now so much more focused, arguably monomaniacally, on anyone who's saying anything against the Kremlin and above all against the quote-unquote special military operation, I think it very definitely not just taken its eye off the ball, but taken its eye off the whole ball game. And when it comes to the Muslim population, there is also a very, very delicate political balancing act. Now, Muslims represent about 10% of the Russian population overall. But we should recognise that there is a particular factor, given not just the poverty of many, though not all Muslim areas, but also the fact that actually their birth rates are substantially higher than those of, for example, ethnic Russians. What this means is there's a lot of young men, including a lot of unemployed young men, and let's be honest, no one causes trouble, quite like unemployed young men. But also, Muslims are disproportionately represented in the military, either just because there are more young men, conscripts and the like, but also because for so many, a military career seemed to be a way out of a lack of economic opportunities at home. So, you know, for all these reasons, the Kremlin feels it has to be much more cautious. And to this end, it has tried very much to control expressions of strong Muslim solidarity. I mean, for example, some people suggest that one of the reasons for the riot was precisely because up to now, people in Dagestan and elsewhere had not been allowed to have sanctioned pro-Hamas or pro-Palestine rallies. So it was inevitably going to sort of bubble out in an unsanctioned and violent way. But for all that, we should recognise that Muslim is not the same as Muslim. There are, for example, no signs of the same kind of issues in Muslim-majority Tatarstan, which is a relatively prosperous and, and, and successful republic. Still, overall, though, in terms of policy, there's still very clear fear 
of stirring up more trouble in the North Caucasus right now. But on the other hand, they may feel now that they have to be rather more heavy-handed because of the signs of violent Islamism out of, you know, running out of control, and that could, as I've suggested, create a backlash. Let's be clear. Both out of conviction and also because they have been co-opted by the state, the official Muslim faith bodies are all definitely opposed to violence, anti-Semitic pogroms and the like. The, the state-affiliated Coordination Centre of Muslims of the North Caucasus, for example, had already said that calls for attacks on Jews are contrary to the spirit of the Islamic multinational North Caucasus. Now, that might be a tad generous, but it certainly shows the official line, especially as you know, North Caucasus countries such as Dagestan actually have their own minority of so-called mountain Jews, even if they've dwindled in number quite dramatically from their peak at around 10,000 in the mid-20th century to just a, f a few hundred families now. But the thing is, you know, along with the mountain Jews of Kabardino-Balkaria, they, they faced a, a particular spate of violence in 1993-1994, which again may well have some connection with the Second Chechen War, but overall there hadn't been these kind of issues. So it's not necessarily that it's a deep-seated anti-Semitism within the North Caucasus. Actually, as Almut Rochevansky has written again in the Moscow News, it's worth actually giving a sort of solid quote from her writing. Moscow's decade-long silence in the face of this violence and systemic subversion of the rule of law is symptomatic of the bargain the Kremlin has made with the North Caucasus. In return for collaboration over national security and a fragile peace in a region that has seen horrific violence, Moscow has turned a blind eye to local men who throw women, children, minorities and other vulnerable groups to the wolves. The wolves, in this metaphor, can be old or young, proponents of either Salafist or traditional Islam, or perhaps neither. They include representatives of the authorities and their aggrieved opponents, or just random communities and families. Whatever form they take, always there should be a they there. They always think they are entitled to violence and must be indulged. And I'll leave a link to the article, the full article, in the program notes. So actually the way she's framing this is that it was part of the devil's bargain. That given that for so long Moscow has turned a blind eye to deep societal violence within the North Caucasus, precisely so as not just to stir it up then these kind of passions can, can emerge and then it Moscow is faced with a particular dilemma when it suddenly erupts to, to the degree that it needs to give a policy response. And although she doesn't make this explicit connection, I would suggest that Chechnya under Ramzan Kadyrov is perhaps the perfect example. A Sharia law personalistic satrapy, despite the fact that Every one of those characteristics is against Russian law and constitution, and one that is actually funded from Moscow. So it is certainly true that indulgence of all sort of localised and interpersonal violence buys short-term stability of an ugly sort in return for long-term trouble. So we may well see Islamist chickens coming home to roost here. Because... I really wouldn't want to overplay anti-Semitism in Russia as a whole, as I've mentioned. Look, of course, Russia has a deeply dark history, 
of anti-Semitism. Whether we're talking pogroms, whether we're talking the forgery of the so-called protocols of the ancient elders of Zion, you know, all of these kind of you know, blood libel, all of these kind of things have an unfortunately central place in how Russians dealt with their Jewish population. But I think things have moved on. As of a survey in April of 2023, 88% of Russian citizens view Jews positively, only 9% negatively. And frankly, that kind of uh, level has been pretty stable for some time. Now, OK, 9% of the population viewing Jews negatively, that is a bad thing. I'm not saying any, uh, otherwise. But it's not actually the kind of massive constituency that some might suggest. And the Anti-Defamation League did its own, or does actually, its own polling, based rather not on sort of a, a binary positive or negative, but rather on how far people were willing to accept a variety of anti-Semitic tropes, and using that to get a sense of how the population responds to Jews. And it found 26% of Russians holding these views. Now, 26%, obviously, a lot more than 9%. But using the same methodology, it found that 35% of Poles and 37% of Hungarians also accepted and shared these anti-Semitic tropes. And 26% of Russians, well, that matches the same scores of both the Spaniards and the Belgians. So let's at least just say it's, it's a complex issue. And one certainly can't hold the Russians up as poster children of enlightened views on the Jewish question. They are by no means terrible these days, and they are by no means the worst. So how does all this play out in the current conflict? Well, polling from the Levada agency, the Levada Centre, sorry, finds two-thirds of Russians frankly don't want to take sides in the current conflict in the Middle East. And although 20% sympathise with Palestinians and only 6% with the Israelis, to a considerable extent, to be honest, I think that represents not a view that Hamas has a really well thought out programme and really should be allowed to have its way, but rather a response to the humanitarian situation, because that is really the main thing that they are seeing in the Russian state media. Indeed, it's actually interesting to look at the status of Israel specifically Israel, not Jews, amongst the ultranationalists who actually might well normally be considered most likely to hold anti-Semitic views. Because these people tend to be, frankly, great fans of Israel. On the basis, not of its Jewishness specifically, but rather its martial spirit, and as they see it, its, let's say, robust willingness to protect its interests. And you know, many a time I've heard people saying Russia should be more like Israel. So as I say, it's really complicated. And even where we do see violent anti-Semitism, as in Dagestan, in some ways, and this is true of anti-Semitism so often in so many different times and places, it actually represents other social and political and economic tensions. I mean, Dagestan particularly has seen growing urbanization without actually increased prosperity. I mean, Mahachkala itself has increased quite dramatically over the last decade. And there's lots and lots of young men 
with nothing to do, who have come from the villages, in which case they're, they're no longer under the, the influence and control of the sort of traditional structures of family and clan and, and all the rest of the stuff. A bunch of young men with few social controls, nothing to do. Well, this is really a recipe for disaster wherever it may happen to be. And these are, on the whole, the people who seem to have gathered together, heeding the call of Uttro Dagestan and all the other hateful social media channels to carry out the riot at the airport. And that reminds us, finally, that social media from within and without Russia is actually a force in shaping, in particular, sharpening public opinion there primarily in anti-regime ways. You know, there's such a focus, often ludicrously overhyped, on the impact of Russian disinformation and misinformation operations in the West carried out through social media. And I think we forget that this is not so much a two-edged sword as a ball of razors cutting in every single direction. And often not at the behest of any nation, any spook agency, any multinational corporation or church, but rather people in their back rooms obsessively posting propaganda and hate, or just the, the random interconnection and overlap of a whole variety of different views, agendas and such like. Now, increasingly, this doesn't only sort of reorient some of the sense of the potential security threats to the state, but also, it's worth noting, does suggest that this is a genuine point of potential attack, not only for the Russian opposition, but for the West. And so, as I should say, as I write in my weaponization of everything, now also out in Arabic, the Kremlin, having so often talked about the pernicious threat of subversion from without. I mean, remember, these are the people who think that hybrid war, is some kind of magical Western weapon that the CIA and MI6 deploy to bring down regimes left and right and is now using against Russia. I mean, again, this is a line going, going back to the infamous Gerasimov non-doctrine, people who know what that is for which you still have my apologies. Instead, we've also seen that the Russian state has actually failed to respond to it properly. This is a, what would one think of as a textbook case of tensions that rise within the country for a variety of reasons. Reasons which, in the main, of which the Kremlin is well aware. I mean, this is not stuff that hasn't been discussed in Russia as well. But then is massively mobilised by social media channels which are in the main from outside the country and yet which cannot really be effectively controlled by the Russian state. Russia is not amenable to the kind of Chinese-style Great Firewall and which is able to generate what we could think of as kinetic effects, i.e. violence at home. Violence which not only demands a diversion of resources away from other threats but also undermines the, the credibility the deterrent capacity of the state. These are things that if the Russians had actually paid attention to what they themselves were saying, they should have been in a better position to be aware of. So in conclusion, what do I think we can learn from Makachkala? It is not that Russia is a hotbed of anti-Semitism or that the Kremlin is in any way encouraging of this. Rather, this is a symptom of 
well, I wouldn't say state failure, but let's say state overstretch and state incompetence. That in its obsessive focusing on the needs to support the special military operation, it has neglected other, I would suggest, rather more significant security threats than a sort of a bunch of pacifists maybe putting out some posters every now and then to say war is bad. That in the North Caucasus, they have failed either to address the kind of the, the development oriented side of security. In other words, actually giving people jobs to keep them happy and content and a reason whereby they think that the state is on their side. But nor have they been able to properly address the security side of things. In other words, properly monitoring, if need be, preempting and dealing with people. And I think that's where we're going to see. I mean, we may see a little bit of money going towards uh, Dagestan, but not enough to really make a difference, just maybe to not make things worse. But on the other hand, I imagine we are going to see a lot more security activity. And that, in turn, will inevitably, especially in the short term, lead to more anti-state rather than anti-Jewish or whatever violence. Ultimately, this is the Kremlin's problem. It has, in some ways, I would say, you know, look, I don't really think of as the Russian state as an empire, but the North Caucasus, I think, is still much more clearly an imperial possession. Maybe instead of actually continually claiming that the Brits are behind all their ills, they really should ask us for a bit of advice as to how you continue to deal with imperial possessions. The Russians used to know how to do it, but they seem to have forgotten. So perhaps we can give them a few tips. I don't actually think that's going to happen. But nonetheless, I think it really does emphasise the degree to which, I won't say what happens in Makhachkala stays in Makhachkala, but that on the one hand, this is essentially a North Caucasus problem. But certainly that a problematic North Caucasus is going to be a, ch a serious challenge, I think, to the Kremlin. And as we go into the run-up to the presidential elections, you might not think this matters. But this is my last point, don't worry. We shouldn't underestimate just how neuralgic an issue for so many Russians the prospect of conflict in the North Caucasus is. And this is the irony. Populations who now may well have become inured to the idea that they are locked into a long-term war in Ukraine will still nonetheless be terrified by the thought of a new Chechen war, let alone a wider North Caucasus war. And to that end, Putin's hopes of being able to present himself as at once the guarantor of Russia's security and secondly, the, the one man who can stand up against a real threat to Russia, which is from this collective West attempt to sort of impose hegemony on the world and such like, will all sound pretty threadbare if people are considering the possibility that their boys who are conscripts and thus haven't been sent to Ukraine might end up actually finding themselves in the mountains of North Caucasus instead. So this does matter, but perhaps in a different way from some of the Insta commentary has suggested. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. 
Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>